Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. This morning, I want to start a new sermon series, and it's taken me about a year as your senior pastor, but I'm going to finally get into something that uh, is kind of, I guess, in my wheelhouse, as you would call it, but um, we're going to go into the Old Testament for a little while. Uh, we're going to go into some topics that I know are very near and dear to our hearts, um, something that we know is vitally important to our salvation and to the things that we've learned throughout our kingdom life here. And so I would encourage you to um, open your minds a little and to receive what God would have you receive starting this morning. As you can see in your bulletin, we're in the book of Nahum, which is not, well, sometimes it's commonly preached, but not quite often much anymore. What we're going to talk about are things that we have learned from the past. And so as you turn to Nahum, as you turn to Nahum I'm going to read this morning. It says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. So right away you can see we need to be opening our eyes and understanding who God is. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him. The hills melt the earth. The world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. So what should we gather from this particular passage of scripture? Well, it's abrupt. It's precipitous. It's unexpected. And reading the opening words of Nahum's prophecy will almost give you as a reader whiplash. Because it is. It's abrupt. The prophet opens the brief prophecy by pointing to the perception of God's character as seen by the wicked. The character of God is terrifying to those who are determined to pursue their own desires. Then, without so much as even a nod to the fact that he is uh, transitioning, the, the prophet of God abruptly speaks 
of the way God appears to those who look to him for refuge. Confusing? Possibly. But only for those who have never met the living God. The wicked seldom think of God. And it, I think it's pretty apparent in their character, the way they speak, the way they do things, right? Or do they think of him? And when they do, I would suggest that it is very fleeting. It's not something that they dwell on very much. Simply thinking of God does not cause wicked people to reconsider their actions. However, their lack of perception and failure to consider the cost to themselves to do what is evil does not change their perception when they meet God. In other words, miracles are performed every day. People are witness to them. Anybody here see the sunrise this morning? People are witness to miracles every single day, the good and the wicked. But does that change your perception of God, depending on where you stand? Does it change your perception of who God is? God has described himself in his word by pointing to various qualities. You see, he presents himself as faithful. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, as compassionate and merciful. James 5.11, and as a good God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, of course, we have all read that God is light. John 1.5, and that he is also love. But according to what is revealed in Hebrews 6.10, for all these positive representations of the Lord, we who are twice born are also aware that the Lord is an avenger. Not from the Marvel series by any means, although that would be a pretty cool character. But he's an avenger. He watches after his flock. He watches after us. He takes care of of business. Our God is a consuming fire. And these latter depictions are aimed at professing believers, cautioning us not to presume against the Lord our God. You see, God wants his people to know him in the fullness of his goodness. However, knowing his character, we are cautioned not to presume against him. And at the same time, Jesus' words to the disciples comfort those who follow him and terrify those who turn from him. Jesus warns, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he was killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? You've heard this? I know none of my younger folk in here have heard this, but... 
and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Dave, I'm sorry, but both of us, we don't, need a, we don't even need a calculator anymore. Our hairs are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Luke chapter 12. That's encouraging for me. Is it encouraging for you? To know who God is, how God has explicitly told us exactly who he is. It doesn't matter our popular belief. It doesn't matter what the world tells you. God himself has told you exactly who he is, what he is, and what he will be. So we take comfort in that. To sinners, the character of God is dreadful when they at last witness his awesome power in judgment. We see the final actions of bold sinners in John's vision, the apocalypse. Listen to these frightful words as John recorded them of what shall take place on the earth during the great days of the great tribulation when God begins to judge the earth. It says, When the Lamb of God opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The kings of the earth don't cry out now, but a day is pending when the kings of the earth, together with the great ones, will plead for the mountains in which they hide to collapse on them. It's kind of like that uh-oh moment, as we like to call it. Begging God and begging for mercy as their lives are being snuffed out. The generals of the armed forces of our world don't often plead for divine mercy in this present hour. But a day is coming when their courage will melt away. The rich and the powerful live lives of privilege now. But a day is coming when the most precious real estate one can own will be those caves and mountain peaks. And there, the privilege will make common cause with slaves and serfs crying out for the rocks to fall on them, hiding them from the wrath of the Lamb. How the lost who now ignore the Lord will be transformed when he at last reveals his wrath. So I'm inviting us who listen today to listen to Nahum as he presents the differences and how people see God. How do you See God. 
He will look somewhat more intensely at how the lost see the living God and then briefly consider how the righteous see the Lord. You see, the sinner's view of God and Nahum's oracle is pronounced against Nineveh. And Nineveh was at the time when uh, Nahum delivered his prophecy. The sole superpower in the world. The nation was ruthless, vicious, evil. They worshiped gods that were vile. And Israel was threatened by this wicked nation or this powerhouse, if you want to call it that. To be certain, the prophecy, as is true in all the prophecies found among the minor prophets and the major prophets, would have an impact on Israel. However, it was through the prophetic word the Lord was endeavoring to encourage his people by reminding them that despite all appearances... God was in control. He was in control. How comforting to the follower of the Christ to know that God reigns. Does God reign? Absolutely. How terrifying to those outside of Christ to realize that God is in control and that he holds them accountable for what they say and what they do. Have you ever thought about the fact that cults and unbelievers have no confidence of God's goodness? They may fear his judgment, and they should, but they have no confidence of his goodness. They have nothing in that regard in feeling of who God is. What is God? What is he? Who is he? If we pronounce a blessing or a curse without biblical basis, where would we obtain confidence about what was pronounced here in this prophecy? Those outside of Christ may speak of God's goodness, but it is inevitably in the context of a wish and not of an explanation or the explanation of confidence. Muslims have no confidence that their God accepts them, nor can they have such confidence. They hope they can coerce that God into accepting their acts of hatred against others as sufficiency to permit them to have a place in paradise. Buddhists have no confidence that they will find nirvana, but they continue trying to be perfect because there is no other recourse for them. Hindus have no certainty that any of the multiplicity of gods will accept them, but they have no alternative except to continue trying to placate those gods. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, not one of these so-called Christian cults have confidence that their efforts, that their slavish adherence to their God or to the rules and regulations will suffice to coerce God to accept them. Lest you think that I am bashing those who are outside of the grace of God, let me assure you 
that I am sympathetic to such people. Because I was once among those people. You were amongst those people. In Christ, we received his spirit. And the spirit of Christ testifies with our spirit that we are children of the living God. Whereas we once were without confidence toward God, now we are confident of his love. We have confidence to approach his throne, knowing that our Father will receive us. We now have confidence that our God is not, an, he's not a bully seeking to intimidate us into doing his will. Rather, we serve a God who seeks what is best for us in every situation. Our confidence in God and in his goodness rests securely in our certainty that his word is true. We have nothing of which we may gloat or boast. We are recipients of the Lord's mercy and grace. End of story. Having believed the message of grace, we can say with all the redeemed, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received that mercy. This is what the Lord has done for us. So how do sinners see God? What does an unsaved person think when they allow themselves to think of God? Perhaps it would be fair to say that such people lack the capacity of forming an opinion of God or of his character. Nahum opens his prophecy by presenting a sinner's view of God. He writes again, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. If I was an unbeliever, I would look at that and say, don't mess with God. That's their prevailing thought. But how many of them actually follow? Follow up with that. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. And with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Sinners appear prone to dismiss God. Certainly that was the case for most of us before we became to know who God was. If I don't think of him, he won't bother me. I know that's what I thought before I was a Christian. If I don't bother him, he won't bother me. Some deliberately deny God's existence 
And perhaps this is a variance of those who attempt to dismiss God. But the subset described is unique in aggressively refusing to believe there's even such a person as God. David spoke of such people when he wrote, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. The thought presented here is clearly related to the psalmist statement in Psalm chapter 10. And the thought presented there is clearly related to the psalmist statement elsewhere. And it basically says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There are corrupt and they do corrupt things. Psalm 14.1, there is none who does good. If sinners cannot readily dismiss God... The approach often chosen appears to be an attempt to transform him into a mythological entity. We've all heard someone employ the dismissive term, the little man upstairs, or the man upstairs. There is a God without allowing the God they acknowledge as existing to be involved in the individual's life. They craft a God who is seen as grandfatherly type. A God who is benevolent towards all people and tolerant of every disrefutable characteristic. The God they imagine can't bring himself to hurt anyone. Rather, they imagine this God smiling benignly on his people, softly laughing at the foibles and the deliberate acts of disobedience people perpetuate. If people imagine that all dogs go to heaven, then you may be certain that they believe that all people go to heaven. Well, there may be a few exceptions, and generally those individuals we don't particularly like. They won't go to heaven. However, when sinners allow themselves to actually think about God. They are terrified at the one they confront in the hidden recesses of their minds. Do you remember the first time that you encountered God? Was it a joyous occasion or was it a time where you just felt, wow. A man who loves me so much, he gave me everything. And I have done everything to not warrant that grace and mercy. What could I possibly give him? What could I possibly do? What could I possibly say? But this is the comforting promise God has given to all who are willing to receive it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth of one confesses and is saved. You see, Paul concludes that divine promise by quoting the prophet Joel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because we know that God is a refuge. Those who believe in him know that he is a refuge. Because the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. You see, this prophecy asserts several precious truths concerning the Lord. Truths of which each Christian needs to be reminded from time to time. He reminds us that the Lord is good. The goodness of the Lord our God leads to affirming that the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And finally, it testifies that God knows those who take refuge in him. Especially when we are in the midst of trouble. We need to remember these truths. Our flesh will question how this can be true. But the child of God must always remember the truth that tells us we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. Sinners are prone to see God as terrifying. And that is when they actually allow themselves to think of God. And perhaps this accounts for why sinners don't want to think about God. However, redeemed people, those who have been saved and brought into the family of God through faith in the risen Son of God. We recognize God as our Father. And as Father of the righteous, God is recognized for His goodness. He is seen as a protector of those who look to Him. Do you know him? Do you recognize his goodness? Perhaps you will recall the final affirmation of the second psalm. After warning the powerful of this earth against opposing God, and after cautioning sinners that they will face the omnipotent God, the psalmist urges all to look to the Son testifying that his might is unquestioned and that his judgment is just. Then the psalmist makes this comforting statement. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The people of God are blessed because they have a strong protector. As you take refuge in the living God, you are kept safe. <coughs> Excuse me. You are protected as you turn to him. Therefore, you are blessed because you have taken refuge in the Lord your God. Surely, this is the promise given in the 121st Psalm. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. 
The sun shall not strike you by day. <coughs> Nor, <coughs> excuse me, devil's trying to attack. <laughs> Hold on. Wow. <coughs> Excuse me. Nor, <clears throat> nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The redeemed of the Lord know that he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And according to Nahum, one thing we can know for certain is that because we follow the Lord, we will see troubles. And nevertheless, an even greater certainty for that the follower of the risen Savior is that our God is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And we know, even as I'm standing here now, troubles will come. Troubles will come. And our God will be our stronghold when those troubles come. The people of God are confident they have a refuge to which they can flee. And that refuge is the Lord our God. <clears throat> when trials shall come and they become apparent. And when Peter writes to those facing such trials, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test us. As though something strange were happening to us. He goes on to say many different things, but they're encouraging to us to understand that we are going to go through trials. We're going to go through things that test our faith. But instead of looking at that as a trial, could we not look at that as an opportunity and that God loves and cares and is confident in us enough to give us that trial? To look at things in a more positive manner when God and Peter and all the prophets have given us encouragement to do so. Jesus himself has taught us, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. So whatever we're going through, like Dave talked earlier, I know that a lot of us in here are bringing trials into this room. Difficulties. Things that would knock most people to the ground. But God said, I am there with you. I am there with you. And he's taught us. And he has promised this. And the last time I've checked, God has not broken a promise. So we need to take courage. The master doesn't suggest that we may have trouble. He assures us that we will. The troubles and suffering that we encounter will often be because we follow him and we obey him and we obey his will. That the source of our troubles is the world. And that is evident when Jesus reminds us that he has conquered the world. The world will be offended at Christ. However, because the world cannot strike at him, 
This fallen world will strike at us in their frustration and at their inability to strike the master. Nevertheless, we need to not fear what the world will attempt to do to us because we have that stronghold in that day of trouble. Don't be offended. They're not coming after you. They're not coming after me. They're coming after the master. The Lord gave us life. And he cannot forget the one he has brought to life. And that is the case is made evident from Jesus' words. You recall that the master has testified, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Truly, the words that Jesus spoke in the presence of religious leaders who were seeking to tarnish his reputation. And some were even trying to kill him. But this is a precious promise to the one who follows him. I have sometimes pointed out the matter that God's knowledge of us will either cause great sorrow or great joy. For the lost, the fact that God knows them and that he knows the wickedness of their heart terrifies them. And such knowledge should terrify lost people. Among the Psalms is one written by the sons of Korah, and the psalmist speaks of God's knowledge. And in the 44th Psalm, this psalmist writes as one who is appealing to God because he worships the Lord God. He makes an informative statement as he appeals to the Lord. He says, Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And what the psalmist has written here anticipates a truth that is found in the letter to the Hebrew Christians. And you may recall how we are informed in that letter. No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account to. Early in the letter to the saints in Rome, the apostle Paul teaches Christians, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And while their conscience also bears witness and their Conflicting the thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according 
to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In other words, the living God knows us. Do you know him? When you think of God, what do you see? When God speaks to you, what do you hear? Are we actively seeking him in all that we do? One of the most terrifying aspects of eternity when one is separated from the love of God is that the lost person will remember for all eternity his or her own wickedness. The impact of their decisions had on innocent people whom they loved and the knowledge that they rejected God's mercy when it was offered. Some might call that a scare tactic. I call it truth. I call it inevitability for those who reject God. For redeemed people, the knowledge of God's love which they have received in Christ, the Lord will bless throughout all eternity. Saved people will glorify the Lord throughout the entirety of eternity. And blessing God for his mercy and for his goodness. And they will witness the Lamb of God upon his throne. And they will praise the Father for the salvation that he has provided. And only he can provide. Their presence in eternity will be characterized by the endless joy with which the Lord fills their hearts. The saved individual will be filled with inexpressible joy throughout the endless ages. Have we never read as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him? Do we look forward to that day? And more importantly, does it excite us enough to tell others about it? To inform them of what God has in store for them, if they only choose to believe. That's what God is coming at us with here. He wants us to simply embrace him. To understand when we look to God, we need to be sure of what we see. We need to understand what we see. What does it mean to receive Christ as Lord? What does it mean to invite him to be your master? It means that you love him. It means you have love for the master. And it is revealed through your obedience to his commands. There is but an anticipation of what is written in, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Throughout scripture, God equates love with obedience. In light of this understanding, note that our master also said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if 
I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world, and we know this, cannot receive. Because it is neither, they neither see him nor do they know him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I take refuge in that promise. We all need to take refuge in that promise. As the master offered up his high priestly prayer, we witness him as he prays. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. And I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you have sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. That should be our desire this morning. Is it your desire to know God? To know that grace and mercy that he bestows upon all who believe? How simple is that? Love the Son and be careful to honor his commands. But here is my question to you. How can you obey him if you don't openly associate with his people? If you refuse to share in the life of the body of Christ, where is the love you claim to have for the Lord and the Lord's church? If you love him, how is it that you don't love his people? The message is meant to disturb the casual. And my prayer is that the Spirit of God will do precisely that with you. Pretending that you are a follower of Christ though your life is occupied with everything but obedience to his call, even so, God loves us. God is calling to you. God is calling for you to serve. And God will provide the opportunity. We only need to ask. Amen? Dave, come and lead us this morning. A lot of songs we sing each day, right? You sing in your car, you sing at home. We sing a lot of songs. A great song, when we wake up each day, maybe when we go to bed at night, is to sing of the goodness of God. In Nahum, for the Lord is good, a refuge for those who seek Him. May this be our heart's desire as we leave today. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hand. Yes, from the moment that I wake up 
Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for those who could be here to be a witness to your truth. And Lord, as we've gathered that truth, I pray that we take that truth and we give it to those who desperately need it. That we share it with those who clearly need to know you and to have communion with you, Lord. Thank you so much for our opportunities here today. Lord, I pray that you will bless the activities that will follow. Lord, you are good. You are good. Thank you for loving us and bestowing that grace and mercy upon us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.